Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 7 The War of the Gods and the Demons Part 1 The materialist theory of history, that all politics and ethics are the expression of economics, is a very simple fallacy indeed. It consists simply of confusing the necessary conditions of life with the normal preoccupations of life, that are quite a different thing. It is like saying that because a man can only walk about on two legs, therefore he never walks about except to buy shoes and stockings. Man cannot live without the two props of food and drink, which support him like two legs. But to suggest that they have been the motives of all his movements in history is like saying that the goal of all his military marches or religious pilgrimages must have been the golden leg of Miss Kilmanseg or the ideal and perfect leg of Sir Willoughby Pattern. But it is such movements that make up the story of mankind, and without them, there would practically be no story at all. Cows may be purely economic, in the sense that we cannot see that they do much beyond grazing and seeking better grazing grounds. And that is why a history of cows in twelve volumes would not be very lively reading. Sheep and goats may be pure economists in their external action, at least. But that is why the sheep has hardly been a hero of epic wars and empires thought worthy of detailed narration. And even the more active quadruped has not inspired a book for boys called Golden Deeds of Gallant Goats, or any similar title. But, so far from the movements that make up the story of man being economic, we may say that the story only begins where the motive of the cows and sheep leaves off. It will be hard to maintain that the Crusaders went from their homes into a howling wilderness because cows go from a wilderness to a more comfortable grazing grounds. It will be hard to maintain that the Arctic explorers went north with the same material motive that made the swallows go south. And if you leave things like all the religious wars and all the merely adventurous explorations out of the human story, it will not only cease to be human at all, but cease to be a story at all. The outline of history is made of these decisive curves and angles determined by the will of man. Economic history would not even be history. But there is a deeper fallacy besides this obvious fact, that men need not live for food merely because they cannot live without food. The truth is that the thing most present to the mind of man is not the economic machinery necessary to his existence, but rather that existence itself, the world which he sees when he wakes every morning and the nature of his general position in it. There is something that is nearer to him than livelihood, and that is life. For once that he remembers exactly what work produces his wages, and exactly what wages produce his meals, he reflects ten times that it is a fine day, or it is a queer world, or wonders whether life is worth living, or wonders whether marriage is a failure, or is pleased and puzzled with his own children or remembers his own youth, 
or in any such fashion vaguely reviews the mysterious lot of man. This is true of the majority, even of the wage slaves of our morbid modern industrialism, which, by its hideousness and inhumanity, has really forced the economic issue to the front. It is immeasurably more true of the multitude of peasants or hunters or fishers who make up the real mass of mankind. Even those dry pedants who think that ethics depend on economics must admit that economics depend on existence. And any number of normal doubts and daydreams are about existence. Not about how we can live, but about why we do. And the proof of it is simple. As simple as suicide. Turn the universe upside down in the mind, and you turn all the political economists upside down with it. Suppose that a man wishes to die, and the professor of political economy becomes rather a bore with his elaborate explanations of how he is to live, and all the departures and decisions that make our human past into a story have this character of diverting the direct course of pure economics. As the economist may be excused from calculating the future salary of a suicide, so he may be excused from providing an old-age pension for a martyr. As he need not provide for the future of a martyr, so he need not provide for the family of a monk. His plan is modified in lesser and varying degrees by a man being a soldier and dying for his own country, by a man being a peasant and specially loving his own land by a man being more or less affected by any religion that forbids or allows him to do this or that. But all these come back not to an economic calculation about livelihood, but to an elemental outlook upon life. They all come back to what a man fundamentally feels when he looks forth from those strange windows which we call the eyes, upon that strange vision that we call the world. No wise man will wish to bring more long words into the world, but it may be allowable to say that we need a new thing, which may be called psychological history. I mean the consideration of what things meant in the mind of a man, especially an ordinary man, as distinct from what is defined or deduced merely from official forms or political pronouncements. I have already touched on it in such a case as the totem, or indeed, any other popular myth. It is not enough to be told that a tomcat was called a totem, especially when it was not called a totem. We want to know what it felt like. Was it like Whittington's cat or like a witch's cat? Was its real name Postel or Puss in Boots? That is the sort of thing we need touching the nature of political and social relations. We want to know the real sentiment that was the social bond of many common men as sane and as selfish as we are. What did soldiers feel when they saw splendid in the sky that strange totem that we call the golden eagle of the legions? What did vassals feel about those other totems, the lions or the leopards, upon the shield of their lord? So long as we neglect this subjective side of history, which may more simply be called the inside of history, there will always be a certain limitation on that science which can be better transcended by art. So long as the historian cannot do that, fiction will be truer than fact. There will be more reality in a novel. Yes, even in a historical novel. 
In nothing is this new history needed so much as in the psychology of war. Our history is stiff with official documents, public or private, which tell us nothing of the thing itself. At the worst, we only have the official posters, which could not have been spontaneous, precisely because they were official. At the best, we have only the secret diplomacy, which could not have been popular precisely because it was secret. Upon one or other of these is based the historical judgment about the real reasons that sustained the struggle. Governments fight for colonies or commercial rights. Governments fight about harbors or high tariffs. Governments fight for a gold mine or a pearl fishery. It seems sufficient to answer that governments do not fight at all. Why do the fighters fight? What is the psychology that sustains the terrible and wonderful thing called a war? Nobody who knows anything of soldiers believes the silly notion of the dons, that millions of men can be ruled by force. If they were all to slack, it would be impossible to punish all the slackers. And the least little touch of slacking would lose a whole campaign in half a day. What did men really feel about the policy? If it be said that they accepted the policy from the politician, what did they feel about the politician? If the vassals warred blindly for their prince, what did those blind men see in their prince? There is something we all know which can only be rendered in an appropriate language as realpolitik. As a matter of fact, it is an almost insanely unreal politik. It is always stubbornly and stupidly repeating that men fight for material ends, without reflecting for a moment that the material ends are hardly ever material to the men who fight. In any case, no man will die for practical politics, just as no man will die for pay. Nero could not hire a hundred Christians to be eaten by lions at a shilling an hour, for men will not be martyred for money. But the vision called up by realpolitik, or realistic politics, is beyond example crazy and incredible. Does anybody in the world believe that a soldier says, My leg is nearly dropping off, but I shall go on till it drops. For after all, I shall enjoy all the advantages of my government obtaining a warm water port in the Gulf of Finland. Can anybody suppose that a clerk turned conscript says, If I am gassed, I shall probably die in torments. But it is a comfort to reflect that should I ever decide to become a pearl diver in the South Seas, that career is now open to me and my countrymen. Materialist history is the most madly incredible of all histories, or even of all romances. Whatever starts wars, the thing that sustains wars is something in the soul. That is something akin to religion. It is what men feel about life and about death. A man near to death is dealing directly with an absolute. It is nonsense to say he is concerned only with relative and remote complications that death in any case will end. If he is sustained by certain loyalties, they must be loyalties as simple as death. They are generally two ideas, which are only two sides of one idea. The first is the love of something said to be threatened, if it be only vaguely known as home. The second is dislike and defiance of some strange thing that threatens it. The first is far more philosophical than it sounds, though we need not discuss it here. A man does not want his national home destroyed or even changed, because he cannot even remember all the good things that go with it. 
just as he does not want his house burnt down, because he can hardly count all the things he would miss. Therefore, he fights for what sounds like a hazy abstraction, but is really a house. But the negative side of it is quite as noble as well as quite as strong. Men fight hardest when they feel that the foe is at once an old enemy and an eternal stranger, that his atmosphere is alien and antagonistic, as the French feel about the Prussian, or the Eastern Christians about the Turk. If we say it is a difference of religion, people will drift into dreary bickerings about sects and dogmas. We will pity them and say it is a difference about death and daylight, a difference that does really come like a dark shadow between our eyes and the day. Men can think of this difference even at the point of death, for it is a difference about the meaning of life. Men are moved in these things by something far higher and holier than policy by hatred. When men hung on in the darkest days of the Great War, suffering either in their bodies or in their souls for those they loved, they were long past caring about details of diplomatic objects as motives for their refusal to surrender. Of myself and those I knew best, I can answer for the vision that made surrender impossible. It was the vision of the German emperor's face as he rode into Paris. This is not the sentiment which some of my idealistic friends describe as love. I am quite content to call it hatred, the hatred of hell and all its works, and to agree that as they do not believe in hell, they need not believe in hatred. But in the face of this prevalent prejudice, this long introduction has been unfortunately necessary to ensure an understanding of what is meant by a religious war. There is a religious war when two worlds meet. That is, when two visions of the world meet. Or, in more modern language, when two moral atmospheres meet. What is the one man's breath is the other man's poison. And it is vain to talk of giving a pestilence a place in the sun. And this is what we must understand, even at the expense of digression, if we would see what really happened in the Mediterranean. When right athwart the rising of the Republic on the Tiber, a thing overtopping and disdaining it, dark with all the riddles of Asia and trailing all the tribes and dependencies of imperialism, came Carthage riding on the sea. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>